0: Despite it, Uh, listen, Young Chopsky, I need you to do something. I know I'm telling you this is the intro to the episode, but the way this works is I record something and then we edit it and then release it. So this isn't an impossible ask. But what I need you to do is at some point, doesn't have to be this point, but at some point we we are going to need a song for the Spider Network. Or like a sound cue.
1: Yeah, some kind of like, you know, I saw a spider just uh, yesterday climbing over on my couch, hurtling toward me, and I thought about the spider network.
0: That is the one way, fellas, if you ever are getting chased by a woman, just what I do is I keep a pocket of spiders, one pocket no. <laughs> of my dungarees has spiders, and I throw them out behind me like a ninja throws caltrops. And, uh, and that's caltrops are like a smoke store a thing you buy at smoke stores for, to fight against pursuers. And, and it, it, it'll, it'll, it'll stop a basically cripple a city's economy.
1: I screamed so loud. I'm not going to lie. So loud when I saw it. Darted across the room. Started crying. I can't handle spiders. It's why I hate uh, fascists so much, <laughs> which we're going to get into in this episode.
0: Do you know what I do whenever, uh, whenever, whenever girlfriends have asked me to take care of a spider problem for them? What? I take the spider, pretend that I killed it, and then I let it go.
1: Oh, that's nice. You should. You should just say, goodbye, buddy. Go outside now.
0: I let it go in their purse. I let
2: it go in their purse.
0: Welcome to true Odd.
1: <laughs> we haven't done a, one of those in a while. That's nice.
0: Welcome,
2: welcome, welcome.
0: One of what? Uh where we do the funny voice where we go like True and All. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let's 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 bust one of those out in here. I'm so <laughs> excited for this episode today. You're always excited. By the way, I'm Liz. I, my name is Brace, and we are joined, of course, by the producer, Young Chomsky. Not our producer, Young Chomsky. The producer, Young Chomsky. It's a different one. We, mm. we have replaced him. It's like a, he's like a, a European house DJ.
1: <laughs> we are getting into some... So yeah, Brace, so Brace said this is his favorite stuff, and it's true, because we're talking Nazis. hmm
0: mm-hmm.
1: We're talking Spe- more Nazis.
0: And specifically... Well, specifically, a certain little village down in uh, the Bavarian part of Chile. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and this is, of course, part three of our... This is part three, right? I, I don't fucking know. I think Where, this is This part is three. unofficial, so who know. knows? Yeah, yeah, true. Of our unofficial, unauthorized, and totally illegal subseries, The Spider Network. <laughs> yeah, you're, we're talking your favorite
1: thing. We're, we're talking esoteric Nazism. We're talking my favorite thing. Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just get into it.
0: Welcome to episode three. I'm kind of sound like I'm doing ASMR here. <laughs> Welcome to episode three of our Spider Network subseries. Today, we have with us, deep from his bunker, somewhere in the Midwest, I can't remember which state, we have Michael S. Judge from the Death is Around the Corner podcast and uh, a notorious freak. Michael, how are you doing?
3: <laughs> La Arrania Internacional. I will say, I
0: ca- no, I want I to think that. Calling you notorious freak sounds dark. You're just a regular freak. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a
3: regular freak. See, I'm here, I'm here for a dialectical synthesis because on every other podcast, uh, people in the comments go like, "Oh, you guys are so bad at pronunciation. You guys are even worse than Felix, which is like the low bar." And on my podcast, they go like, "Oh, you're tryhard who says everything right." So oh, I'm gonna say everything
1: oppor-
0: right. Yeah. You'll have plenty of opportunity. With <laughs> yeah, that we're that. gonna today. we'll
1: synthesize uh, me saying everything completely strange. Apparently. <laughs> Brace not knowing what language is what, and you yeah. saying everything perfect. Yeah, I'm about one to thing I will on
0: say. Jump on Spanish. <laughs> I was about to say, like, I, I didn't know that these were. So I was like reading this Colonia Dignidad stuff. Not to little spoiler alert there. And I was like, whoa, German and Spanish are separate. I thought the <laughs> oh, whole yeah. thing was just like the European <laughs> thing. Like all those languages were just kind of the same language, different dialects. But well, they understand, understand
3: each other. I think
0: you learned something new.
3: I think if you're involved with the Nazis, you can just talk to other Nazis.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like a mind-meld sort
3: of situation.
0: So uh, is this our third episode about the Spider Network, Liz? I I think so. That's what we're
1: calling it, by the way, in case uh, people listening or new listeners don't know uh, what we're talking about. Do you want to explain a little bit what we call the Spider Network?
0: (laughs) Yes, and then I'll probably have Michael jump in and talk a little bit about it too. But uh, what I – yeah, what we call the Spider Network is – uh the actual post-war order that, mm. by the way, morphed into what we have today. This—that's Everything we're talking about today did not exist in a vacuum. It was not a discrete event unconnected from any others. What happened in the past is directly uh, uh, precedented what is happening today. It's all the same world. And that, right. that gets a little difficult to think about with this kind of stuff because you're like, oh, man, Nazis— South America, the CIA, blah, blah, blah. But like, no, we are living, we aren't even living in this world shadow. We are living in this world. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how I think of it. I mean, that I was very unspecific, but, but uh, basically it is the, is the network of um, ex-Nazis. Oh, Christ, how to explain this? <laughs> so when America defeated Germany or helped defeat Germany, uh, instead of smashing Nazism, it absorbed it. And then mm. America's sort of uh, process of globalizing this merged ideology of, of fascism and, uh, and capitalism and, um, and became this kind of globe-encompassing shadow state. And that is, uh, that is what the series is about.
1: Yeah, that's what we like to call the Spider
0: Network.
3: Yeah, I just actually just read the other day... Um that between 1949 and 1970, the German Ministry of the Interior never had less than 50% uh, Nazi Party members in its yep. leadership positions.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's—I that's, mean, when I talk about absorbing, I mean literally absorbing. A lot of yeah. the people that come up in this, this episode uh, were, were either members of the Nazi Party, members of, of parties that were modeled after the Nazis— and quite a lot of them worked with Western intelligence agencies, specifically the, the CIA, but also just like literally um, officials from, from Western governments uh, that, that, that had no problem interacting with them and using their services.
3: Absolutely. And I think if, if I could sort of be a little tangential here, that, um, sure. one, one good way to look at it, one good heuristic uh, it, to make sense of all the stuff we're about to talk about is the official post-World War II narrative versus the actual one. And the official one, the kind of Francis Fukuyama story, is that you know, on VE Day, every Nazi and fascist mysteriously disappeared. They all just vaporized. Uh, except the ones who went to the Nuremberg trials, and justice was done. And then for the next 40-odd you know, years, it was uh, a conflict between liberal capitalist democracy you know, evil Soviet authoritarian communism, and we won because, essentially, God was on our side, and from that point on, there is nothing left to history but the inevitable spread of liberal capitalist democracy. One of my favorite things about that asshole Fukuyama is that three weeks after September 11th, he wrote a public letter saying, uh, hey, you know, real tragedy, uh, Sorry for the families, but I'm still right. Uh, I, I, I'm not wrong. Uh, this is, this, everything is still going to happen the way I said it would. So that's kind of the official story. And I think the real story since World War II is about what you could call shadow states or paranational entities that usually begin with some kind of national affiliation and then detach mm. and, and become their essentially their own governments. And For someone in the United States, the CIA would be the most obvious and the most accessible because the CIA, you know, we're taught to think of it the same way we think of uh, the Department of the Interior, for example, you know, that it's just another government agency that just performs a role. And that's not true at all. That since Alan Dulles took over the CIA in 1953, it has essentially become a shadow government. It has become a uh, an organization with its own motives, its own means toward achieving those motives. Uh, they may or may not reconcile with you know, you know the motives of the rest of the executive branch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the best point of comparison for the CAA would be the SS. Mm. It, it, it's a really similar organization in that the SS began as. You know, just a a security service for the highest members of the Nazi party. And it eventually came to set up sort of mirror uh, organizations for every single facet of the German government until it was a separate government virtually unto itself. And it was the one that Hitler trusted and relied upon much more than the actual German government because Oh
0: yeah, even even the army. I mean his oh, his absolutely. relationships with the Wehrmacht deteriorated from basically day 2. And yeah. and he really did only rely on the SS for basically everything for foreign policy uh, which way superseded the the regular foreign office of the of the Germany absolutely.
3: Absolutely. And any, any time there was something important the waffen SS were the people he wanted to deal with. Because fanatical devotion to the Nazi party and to Nazi ideology was baked in at the ground level. Whereas, you know, the, the normal German government was still full of people who were just bureaucrats. And when Nazism came along, they kind of went, eh, you know, whatever. Um, and the the CIA would be the most obvious of these organizations to an American, especially an American. who I mean, I'm guessing anyone listening to this show will know about all kinds of things they've done in Central and South America and Africa and Southeast Asia and so on. But organizations like this exist all over the world from mm-hmm. uh, Le Cercle, the, mm-hmm. the group you guys have talked about, the reactionary Catholic group that um, you know takes in people from all over Western and Southern Europe in particular. Uh, I didn't know this until recently, but the people who ran Margaret Thatcher's campaign in Britain were Le Cercle, Yep. Uh, yeah, they were a group called S.H.I.E.L.D. that were uh, basically a detachment of the Circle, And P2, the right. Propaganda Due Lodge in Italy that you've talked about, which was kind of a an omnibus collection of all kinds of neo-fascist currents in Italy. Yeah. I, and, I and,
0: and I think really notably in the disguise, well, I don't know if you ever want to call it the disguise of a Masonic Lodge.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I don't think... Almost anyone outside of Italy understands how insane it is that Silvio Berlusconi ran that country for almost 20 years.
1: Can you explain why people wouldn't understand that?
3: Well, the P2 Lodge was... I mean, there had been neo-fascist curts, uh literally since the moment the fascism officially ended in Italy, yeah. you know, since, since the uh, mid-40s. And various fascist organizations like the uh, Agente Press, for example, that was Mm -hmm. part French and part Portuguese and part Italian, and the groups founded by people like uh, Stefano Delechiaie.
0: who will be coming uh, up in today's episode, by the way.
3: Yeah, and Guido Mm Giannettini and and a million other people, uh, sort of coalesced into the P2 Lodge, which ran all kinds of operations from neo-fascist terrorism uh, during what are called in Italy the anni di Piombo, the years of lead, mm-hmm. uh, during which the official story is that extremist left and right groups, uh, groups like P2 on the right, and then groups like the Brigadi Rossi, the, uh, the Red Brigades on the left, were you know attacking each other and so forth. But the further we get away from it historically, the more it looks like, the right wing groups may have done almost all the actual terrorism and yeah. assassinations and then blamed it on the left mm. as as something part of something called the strategy of tension, which i I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later um, and so there there was the outright street terrorism assassination of politicians there was train also station bombing train station bombing, yeah. But there was also heavy media ownership and media involvement and coverage of these events. They were in control not only of the events themselves, but of how they got covered in the Italian press. Uh, There was deep involvement with the banking sector, and in particular, the Vatican Bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people, when they hear P2, the thing they probably think of first is Roberto Calvi and uh, the Banco Ambrosiano. Yeah. P2 was laundering money for the CIA. P2 was laundering uh, mafia money. I personally, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but um, uh, I think there's an excellent chance that P2 was involved in the Marc Dutroux uh, Mm. affair in Belgium. And for listeners who may not have heard of that, Dutroux was a guy who um, kidnapped a lot of children who ended up raped and murdered. And when he was arrested for it, said he had been doing it for various right-wing elements within the Belgian government and Belgian high society. And one of the elements he named was uh, P7. And P7 was another Masonic lodge in Belgium, which existed as a front to filter money to P2. People who didn't want it to be known that they were giving money to P2 sent it through P7. So... The, the combination of Dutroux's involvement with P7 and the fact that various P2-involved people have been caught up in sex trafficking and child kidnapping scandals since yep. then, um, not a lot of people know. I, I was raised very Catholic, so I kind of have an eye on the church mm. all, at all times. And um, The election of this last pope, Pope Francis, the one all the liberals like, uh, he wasn't supposed to be the Pope.
1: No, no, he wasn't.
3: <laughs> yeah. The only reason he's the Pope is that the guy they wanted got caught in a, a mafia-connected sex trafficking scandal yeah. right before the papal election. And Pope Francis, or uh, Jorge Maria Bergoglio, his you know, pre-papal name, he's got one long. Uh, so they thought, we'll let this guy be Pope for like nine months and then he'll die and then we'll elect the guy we actually wanted. Yeah, that was a and, whoops. <laughs> yeah, and he just keeps yeah. living and living. <laughs> so the fact that Silvio Berlusconi, a guy who is you know, up to his neck in all this, you can literally go online and see his membership card in yeah. the Propaganda Due Lodge. It's, it's insane that he was ever the president. It's, it's, it's as if the, um, the presidency of the United States were held for 20 years... By like a joint presidency of Donald Trump and like Otto Skorzeny. yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, it, yes. it's fucking nuts.
1: Or it's like if you know, HW was somehow more cartoonish and garish, yeah, because he himself, you know, like I still think it's totally insane that we had director of the CIA become the president. That oh, like absolutely. should never. It, that was like a crossover event that should have never happened.
3: Yeah, it you should know be what I illegal. Mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be allowed to run for president.
1: The way I love the way that you started this by saying that these, um, the way to think of these, you know, organizations, and again, we're going to get more into this, is as detachments that they eventually detach from, kind of from their host. They're like parasites in this way, right? But they attach and become like something they weren't intended to be, and you know, HW kind of like crossing over from. You know what people colloquially call the deep state, shadow government—however you want to call that. I sometimes I find that like maybe those aren't even the best ways to put it because it sounds like it's something that undergirds everything, as right. opposed to this sort of like, as you say, detached, extraneous, um, like nebulous.
0: I, I, I think of it as lattice work. Mm. Like, like, yeah, or, yes. or, or like, you know, when, when you see commercials for like Verizon or one of these companies and they'll show they have cell towers all over the world and the shell, they, they have connections between the cell yeah. towers. It's the every maps. country, every place. Exactly, those maps. This is how this works too. Like yes. any one of those things that you mentioned or any of the one of the things that we'll talk about today too connects to basically every single other one. And whenever you say yes. something like that, Whenever you are like very sure of yourself and tell people, "No, these things connect." People automatically think that you're like crazy or something. That that you have one of these, you know, boards with the pins and the yarn going from here to there. But like this is in black and white all existed and all exists. Right. Like this yeah, isn't we're... something that we're this is no conjecture. This isn't like something we're making up. This is all reported, happened. Many many people died and And it faded further, sort of, it it more merged. I think that one of the things that changed is that that world and sort of our world became pretty much the same world. And that's kind of what we're living in now. We're living, Mm -hmm. it's like they created like, you know, through that lattice work, they they created sort of the landscape for a new earth and then descended to ours. And now we just live in like a world that we don't even know or a lot of people don't even know, you don't even walk around and think about, is a world created by this, and it's the world that they wanted.
3: Yeah, the, I mean, the the way we're taught history is essentially with nation states. Everything before the era of the nation state is kind of vague. Yeah. Then you, get, <laughs> then you get to nation purposely, states. Purposely,
1: purposely, by the right, way. Right, Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And, and as soon as nation states are established, we're taught each one of them as like, you know, what in philosophical terms would be called a windowless monad. Yes. You know, it's got nothing to do with anything else. It's not interconnected in any way. And history is just sort of these like, you know, sock bopper robots smashing blindly together.
0: They're slugging it out. A left to the jaw.
3: And?
2: Oh, my block is knocked off.
3: You can rock'em, sock'em with the rock'em, sock'em robots by Marx. Yes. But something like, to talk about this idea of detachment, Liz, that um, one of the uh, biggest, most profitable military contractors on Earth, Executive Outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, What a horrifying name, by the way. Yeah, totally.
0: Horrible. I mean, talk about the SS.
3: Uh, Yeah. Executive Outcomes was started by this guy, Aben Barlow, Essentially, to reconstitute the security state and the Gestapo in South Africa during the apartheid era, after apartheid fell apart, uh, he could see apartheid coming, and so he hired as many veterans as he could of the uh, South African Bureau of Strategic uh, Bureau of State Security, pardon me, which was kind of like their CIA. And again, another horrifying name, the Civil Cooperation Bureau, (laughs) uh, which was their Gestapo, and turned this state apparatus into a private company. Mm. And um, one of the key points, I think, to make about all of this, uh, one of the, the sort of detached shadow state entities that people least like to talk about is Nazism. Uh, because the Third Reich never ended right it it never stopped. What yes. happened was that the people, canny and slick enough to detach from the nation state, ended up reconstituting the Third Reich on the level of a shadow state mm. or a para entity it It went from being a thing with you know geographical borders and an alleged, you know, political and bureaucratic hierarchy to this kind of malleable, semi-porous, multinational, motile organization that didn't necessarily have uh, the same leaders at any given time, that wasn't necessarily involved in the same uh, national interests at any given time. And um, something, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but... um, one of the things these uh, these shadow states need is territory in which to experiment. Yeah, territory mm. territory in which Proving to grounds. play. Exactly, proven grounds, places to play out their ideas and to demonstrate to potential clientele. Yes, you know we can do X, mm-hmm. and so certain states, essentially created by the CIA, like various dictatorships in Latin America. They weren't just dictatorships because that was more convenient for American policy or because these countries had you know, natural resources that we wanted. They were also proving grounds, exactly like you're talking about. They were places where these organizations could be given tasks and assignments, and we could sort of sit back and go like, oh, okay, interesting. Mm. And these places often included interface points where various sort of post-national shadow state entities could uh, exchange materials and personnel and money and Mm. ideas. And that, I think, is kind of what we're generally building toward here.
1: Yeah, one thing, before we get into in more detail these sort of proving grounds, which I think that's such a great way to put that, um... I just want to pinpoint something you said that I think is very interesting. You brought up, um, you know, the nation state and philosophically the monad, right? And I just want to say, like, just to add to that really quickly, that the reason why... um, you know, that history and that narrative persists is because liberalism as a philosophy, as an ideology, requires a subject that is thought of as a monad. That we are all yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. enclosed individuals, monads, with no social or familiar or um, any other kind of political or any kind of other bond to each other. And the, the only way that we exist with one another is through a negotiation um through a contract with each other in a marketplace. That's how liberalism demands uh, the world be seen. And so it's not a coincidence that the history we're taught, whether it's how we started this episode on the kind of official narrative of post-war, you know, with, you know, the United States, of course, being the, the, the subject of history there, but or or the you know the way we say, well, we don't really know anything about before the nation state it's kind of hazy, but then the nation state emerges and this is this new thing is because that history you know that has to be told that that the world has always been governed by you know monad entities, the nation state or individuals negotiating with each other in a global marketplace or in a social marketplace or a political marketplace. Uh, various rights or disagreements or what have you as a way of reifying the liberal world order. Yes. This is, this is is all, and you know, (laughs) we always make a joke about, you know, we're all eating from the trash can of ideology, but this is the perfect example of exactly why trying to understand how something like, you know, a claim that we're making in this episode that the third Reich never ended which sounds possibly totally absurd and insane is actually true is because you have to kind of break away from this governing, you know, liberal ideology and liberal history narrative in order to understand actually, um, a sort of the the kind of different story that we're trying to tell of how the contemporary world order has emerged.
3: Yeah. This, this is exactly what Marx was talking about in that famous sack of potatoes. Yeah,
1: exactly. Totally. Yeah.
3: That you know uh, we are we are educated to behave like a sack of potatoes. In that, if you pour more water into a bucket of water, you don't have two water. You know, you just it becomes, <laughs> it becomes one. It becomes one new thing. Right, but right, right. A, a sack of potatoes. It's just a bunch of separate potatoes. They don't yeah. add up to anything new. And they bumping and against we,
0: each other and sometimes bruising, but like nothing else.
3: Right. We are taught to think of history in essentially that way.
1: On that note, let's jump in because we mentioned proving grounds. We mentioned, um, you know, we kind of teased like, oh, we're going to get into that later in the episode. So we should just get into it all right now. Previously in this sort of like uh, unofficial series, we had mentioned um, various colonies that were set up. I guess you could call them colonies that were set up uh, post, you know, post-World War II. We had mentioned Colonia Dignidad, which we're going to get into, but that is not the only, that's not the only one or the only instance of, of this sort of um you know, uh, I don't know. I want to say just like uh, I, I think of it as like um, a bunch of rats scattering the globes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like something was like like a trash can. Like it was like the the Soviets knocked over the Nazi trash can, and all the rats scattered. Yeah. <laughs> you know there's a reason
3: they call them rat lines. Yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well,
0: one thing I wanted to mention before we get into this is that is that well, while we're getting into this, actually, it's a good se- little segue in here. Is that is that in our last episode about the veiled prophet? I talked a little bit about some comparisons between sort of these post Confederate organizations and the Free Corps, Right. Mm, um, yeah. and one thing I, and we also touched on, or rather, I guess touched on um, that one of the um, uh, uh, one of the, the sort of progenitors of the of the. Veil Prophet Society was a guy who had at one point fled to Mexico to a Confederate colony, mm-hmm. and there were a ton of Confederate colonies. Not a ton, but there were a handful actually. That's the opposite of a ton of Confederate colonies <laughs> in South America. A one was a lot. Yeah, I mean, which is, I mean, uh, twenty thousand, for instance, ended up in Brazil, uh, yes. where where they still basically their descendants still live today, and essentially kind of larp as Confederates in this little. Um, village they have, and also I found out that one of the members of Awesome Mutante's his dad was a confederado, which is which is kind of funny. Oh, wow. There's two. Well, I really want. that's weren't... kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't. It doesn't mean he's a confederado. No, I yeah. know, but
1: it's just like very strange. Well, it's it's I've also it.
0: like when you think about how uh, slavery was actually ended in uh, Brazil. Oh God, for, I know. Like right? 20 years, at 23 years after it was ended in the U.S. Um, well, officially, but it was still yes, going on. Literally yeah. still happening today. Yeah.
3: I was going to say 23 years ago. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, totally. But not even. Um, th- there's two other. I wanted to mention though one is Nueva Australia which was uh, a a a group of Australian sort of uh, utopian socialists led by this fucking reporter raising the eyebrow here named William Lane who was like a big prohibition guy which actually respect for that Uh, they moved to I believe Paraguay and broke up over race mixing and drinking laws he did he he wanted uh, none of the first and quite a few of the latter um
3: the other <laughs> one is telling me that something involving Australia was racist and like It's freaking. incredible.
0: It's incredible. <laughs> I mean a group of Australian co- uh communists literally moved I mean they called themselves communists moved from Australia to fucking Paraguay and were racist? It's like dude you already live in a colony. Yeah. That yeah. you yeah, can be as racist as you want it.
3: It's I mean this is a total side note, but it's 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 weird to remember how many people sort of latched onto ideas of communism or socialism in the era before marxism was kind of the universal definition of yes. that idea yeah, and how yeah. many utopian societies there were with very different definitions of utopia yes. Right. yes i come from one of those i am here specifically here because one branch of my family moved from germany to be part of a christian anarchist commune
1: No shit,
3: Uh, wow. Yeah, run by like a charismatic German preacher. Mm, And there there were, Mm. um, Missouri is a weird state in a lot of ways. Yes. And there were uh, communes and utopian groups all over the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part part of the reason Joseph Smith came here is because there was essentially nobody to stop him. And still, you can find cities all over the state with made-up Mormon names. There's a city called... Nauvoo, not yes, very far yes. from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Just he just made shit up. I plan. think Jesse
0: <laughs> James, or no, Butch Cassidy, I think's dad, lived in Nauvoo at one point.
3: I was just oh right of wow. him. Yeah, Jesse uh, James lived right around where I am at this moment,
0: <laughs> among there's other a,
3: places. There's, a,
0: there's another colony I want to mention, too, also run by Germans, although none of these people seem particularly charismatic, and I think the type of religion that they practice We would probably find strange and terrible, but um, it's called Nueva Germany, or excuse me, Nueva Germania, also in Paraguay. And this one was established by a guy named Bernard Forster, who was married to—you'll never guess—Nietzsche's busted-ass sister, Elizabeth, (laughs) who famously, famously, (laughs) anti-Semitic, insane, like. I think cripplingly anti Semitic would be a good way to describe her. So they, they left because they thought Germany and Europe had become too soft on Jews. Mind you, this isn't 1887. Yeah, they're incredible. like, these, this is, they're too incredible. nice to Jews here. Uh, they brought 14 families with them to Paraguay. A bunch of them immediately died of lockjaw. A lot of other people just left. Uh, the, the remainder of the people uh, had to deal with a leprosy outbreak. Uh, Elizabeth fucking books it. She goes back to Germany to eventually join the Nazi party. Hitler would actually go to her funeral, I believe. Um, Bernard basically swindled the rest of them that were there, which, by the way, as a Jew, maybe that's why you <laughs> left Europe, Bernard, is because you couldn't handle the competition. Uh, took the rest of their fucking money, gets crazy into debt, and then, bam, off himself with strychnine Thanks. at a hotel in Asuncion
3: I'm the dumbest guy in Germany, but I'm the smartest guy in America.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible! It's incredible! I mean, I, can you imagine like these fucking like frail like just German racists going up the river, Hearts of Darkness style in Paraguay, and then getting to their horrible like little spot they did picked out because these people were not farmers, and then immediately dying of lockjaw. I don't even know you could die of lockjaw. Can you just it not come? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we're talking about today is a little place called Colonia Dignidad, and uh, when Michael mentioned a charismatic German preacher, um, that raised yeah. my eyebrows a little bit because we are also dealing yeah. with a charismatic German preacher. This one named Paul Schaefer,
2: ladies and gentlemen, Paul Schaefer, come on over.
0: Now, Paul Schaefer was born, I think, 1921. He. Uh, You know, when he was grew up, joined the Hitler Youth as a teenager, eventually tried to join the SS, could not, possibly (laughs) due to the fact that this guy was so fucking dumb that when he was a kid, he tried to untie his shoe with a fork and through a completely predictable set of events, ends up literally poking out one of his eyes. He, I think, later told people he lost lost it as a war wound, which, to be clear... I would also do. I would not tell people <laughs> yeah. the real story there. Because that's some, like,
3: gummo shit. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so people, so a, a lot of histories i read of this guy. Um, some of them claim that he was he was in the SS or that he had served in the Eastern Front. That is a lie. He actually, or I think the people were probably just confused, he uh, spent the war as a corporal in the Wehr- Wehrmacht in uh, occupied France in, in a medical unit. So I think he was in just a field hospital. Anyways, World War II ends. Uh, this guy is, like many of these scumbags, lost. And he's a wand- He's wandering around, and he gets really into this um, branch of evangelicalism. Uh, evangelicism? That's how you pronounce it?
2: Uh
0: Called the Evangelical Free Church, which I'm not super familiar with, but... Uh, Apparently spawned a lot of weird people. Apparently, According to, to Steve Snyder, their advice up for you, he was heavily influenced by a guy named William M. Branahan, uh, who was a healer that also very much influenced uh, our good friend Jim Jones, uh, and mm. who at the end of his life said he was a prophet. He believed in something called annihilationism, which is, I think, means there's no hell. You're just annihilated, which, uh, be honest with you, sounds better than hell, like if I was going there. does sound better. There's, some,
1: there's like, more than a couple interesting comparisons here uh,
0: with Jonestown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Listen, listeners out there, if any of your friends starts getting really into religion, any kind of religion, I don't care what kind of religion, but they start getting really into religion, and they're like, hey, I'm going to move to Uruguay. Tell them not to. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. If your religion requires relocation to South America... The batting average on that is like <laughs> zero out of 100. Yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> he has an incredible kill-death ratio.
3: Yeah. It, don't go to Guyana because <laughs> yeah. your, your prophet decided that that's where Christ is coming back.
0: Yeah, For that matter,
3: uh, don't go to Utah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I've been there. It's not, not a pleasant place. I'd rather no. go to Guyana than Utah, although <laughs> under tourist circumstances only. So th- in 1954, uh, he, he hooks up with this guy named Hugo Barr and sort of gets trained as a preacher and starts wandering around sort of as like a... So, so Schaefer starts wandering up and down Germany playing acoustic guitar, uh, you know, sort of a Dylan-esque figure if Dylan was really into uh, evan- uh, evangelical uh, Christianity and also uh, molesting children. But it
2: may be the devil Just have some
0: money. So this guy um, sets up a home for war widows and children about 1960 and then immediately gets accused of molesting the children there. Like, I think only months pass before people are like, yeah, he's raping my kid.
3: His record of child molestation, I was just going to say, is uh, really sort of remarkable in its scope. I mean, eventually yeah. he's importing children from halfway around the world and shit. He's, yeah. He is... This guy wants to molest children more than any other child molester I've ever heard of.
0: Yeah, like we, you know, I think I've probably described Epstein before as like one of the most prolific child molesters sort of in recent history, but I'm almost positive that Schaefer hasn't beat by like a lot.
3: Yeah. And Epstein had, he had it comparatively easy. He had jets and shit. This guy's a lunch pail, you know, nine to five child molester.
1: This guy's got one eye. I mean, he's got one eye. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So
0: so he starts, he starts really, like, entering into a refrain, which will keep up for most of the rest of his life, which is that communism is going to come to the rest of Germany, uh, that, that only his specific brand of Christianity can save people's soul, and that Germany, sort of pre-modern Germany, uh, which, by the way, here's another little tip for listeners out there. If anyone you hang out with starts <laughs> idolizing pre-modern Germany in any Ugh. way, maybe they're just like, I like the pastoral landscapes of, uh, you know, the fields of Bavaria. I would edge away from them.
3: Uh, I think runes are cool. Like, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh. If you know a
0: rune guy, don't hang out with the rune guy. Um, so he, he, of course, uh, starts getting investigated about 1961 by the public prosecutor in Bonn. And he splits to the Middle East, which I have been unable to find out where he was there or what he was doing there, um, but yeah, also several, not a good sign.
3: Several conflicting reports about what the hell was going on, but I haven't, I haven't seen any, like, actual documented proof of what the guy was doing.
0: I mean, it should be noted that around this time, like, Otto Skorzeny, uh was floating around uh, various countries there. He had, I think he had already set up the Paladin Group, sort of his, like, um, mercenary firm but yeah. I know at one point they were training the security services of uh, of Egypt basically modeling them along the lines of the Gestapo.
3: Yeah, I think that was in about 55. Paladin Group's history is kind of hard to trace because it actually existed for like 10 years before yeah. it was incorporated and had a name but I think it was the mid-50s that they trained nasev's security forces and then like 1960 or so was when uh, Skorzeny, uh Uh, had brought the Green Berets over for special training in Spain.
0: To be clear, like, the Green Berets, who later fought, you know, very famously and brutally in Vietnam, were trained in that type of warfare by Otto Skorzeny, the completely unrepented, I would actually say rabid Nazi, who was basically like Hitler's Rambo.
3: I I guess... While we're talking about this, uh, should we talk about Sofindus for a minute?
1: Yes. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do big, yeah, big
3: yeah, into yeah, that yeah. background? Yeah. So, yes. um, uh, we were talking earlier about the way the SS kind of mirrored the functions of all the different departments of the German government, and one of them uh, was a service called the Auslandssicherheitsdienst, uh, which was the foreign security service. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of like their equivalent of a CIA type group. And in 1938, when the Nazis invaded Poland and the war really got going, uh, an Ausland SD agent uh, named Johannes Bernhardt realized, like, shit, we, we could lose this war. I mean, there are a lot of people who are going to be fighting against us. This was before the, the pact between Gershyslaw uh, Molotov and Joachim von Ribbentrop. So they thought, you know, maybe Russia's going to attack us immediately. Uh, And he got in contact with these guys in Spain because there was a uh, Germany to Spain network that the Nazis had used to smuggle weapons to the Spanish fascists during the Spanish Civil War. And um, he got in touch with these guys again and said, hey, what if we use these same same networks to smuggle money? Because if we lose this war, I don't want to get my shit taken away from me. And this was not just, not just the you know, accumulated wealth of the Nazi government, but this is after mass confiscation of property from Jews.
0: Mm-hmm. So and and uh, mass confiscations of artwork and national right? and gold reserves. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, so they've, they've got an enormous amount of uh, both money and stuff worth an enormous amount of money. And they start this group called, in Spanish, the... Uh, Sociedad Financiera Industrial, Ooh, uh, which see, it's Castilian, mi amor. The uh, Industrial Finance Society, which is usually referred to by the acronym SOFINDUS, which in English spells SO FIND US. Um, I know
0: well, that. By the way, <laughs> people will dispute me on this, <laughs> but that is I'm 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 reading through that uh, that through the lens of synchronicity.
3: Yeah, oh, come on, it's got to be. And um, one source I looked at said that during 1944 alone, just in terms of gold not cash, not bank accounts, not art, just gold uh, Sophindu smuggled out in a single year the equivalent of almost 21 billion dollars worth of gold. Jesus. So yeah, we're looking at tens and tens of billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars. A year for seven years eight years so an enormous amount of money mm. and then when the war ends and the nazis have obviously lost sophie moves from the business of smuggling uh money to smuggling nazis and one of the nazis who used the Sofindu's rat line was otto skorzeny who lived as far as i can tell pretty much peacefully um oh, yeah the rest of his life in fascist spain and i even discovered a a part he he founded he kind of invented the modern private private military contract it's it's basically like the first
0: really like of what we know of as like a pmc today his group the paladin group was basically like the progenitors of it they were the the inventors of it and not to use the word progenitors twice in an episode uh but you know imagine i said a different word there
3: (laughs) they they worked with the cia they worked with the special forces and i even found that um at one point otto skorzeny was the official european sales representative for the american company armco steel yep he was just completely unashamedly out there announcing where he was and what his name was uh it, well, he, was also, could, he
0: was married to jean Marchak's uh like, niece, too, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, anyone could have discovered where he was at any point, but I, I suppose because uh, he was in fascist Spain and because he'd worked with the CIA and mm-hmm. the American army, no one was interested in arresting him.
0: By so the way, he the, also worked... Uh, a, a, Israel has, has a reputation for having gone after Nazis uh, after yes. World War II. Um, but one person who was... Uh, not on that list was Otto Skorzeny, who did work with, uh, with Israel, who had, by the way, f- of course, full knowledge of who he was and what he had done.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know that this is true, but I have heard allegedly that two Israeli, um, I don't know what agency they would have been part of, maybe the Mossad, uh, a, a male and female agent were sent out to uh, arrest Skorzeny at a bar that he frequented, by pretending that they were a couple and they wanted to have a three-way with him.
2: Mm-mm.
3: Whoa. <laughs> and they convinced him, yeah, we want to go back to your house and have a three-way. So they go back to his house and they think they're about to arrest him. And then from behind him, they hear the click of a gun. And, okay, so how did you figure out who I was? And that's Incredible. how Scorsetti ended up working for Israel.
0: And, and to oh, be wait. clear, like, Scorsetti was like a real-life James Bond type. Like He was extremely yeah. wily. And by the yeah. way, this is an anti-James Bond podcast, so I don't mean that a, <laughs> it,
3: it yeah. a oh, Blofeld, the villain from James Bond, is based on Otto Skorzeny.
0: Yeah, He's the, the scars, guy who, right?
3: Yeah, the guy with the scar who pets the cat. The name Scarface comes from Otto Skorzeny.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. He got them dueling, I think. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, every... It big- basically, if you look at a portrait of any German who was born sort of pre-World War II, if they're from the upper classes, they have very oftentimes tasteful scars sort of uh, crisscrossing their faces. And those were signs of basically like manhood and virility that they got while dueling at their fucked up schools that they went to. You know, it's like all British upper class people were sort of brutally molested at their private schools. (laughs) And all Germans... Were also probably happened to them as well, considering what we know now about uh, sort of post-World War II German history and, uh, uh, let's say, rather uh, extremely liberal attitudes towards uh, pedophilia, but uh, they, 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 their sort of equivalent to that was just stabbing each other in the faces with, with rapiers.
3: Um, and one time I, w- I was telling an ex-girlfriend of mine about that, and she didn't believe me, so I showed her a photo of German, like, dualist guys. Yeah. And then she was like, oh, dude, that's so hot. So See, apparently it works. still works.
0: Fellas, <laughs> if you're out there, you're young, you're virile, start dueling your boys. It's a it's a totally safe thing to do during COVID. Dual really your long. boys. <laughs> <laughs> So back back to Schaefer, right? So we last saw him. He's in the Middle East with a couple of his lieutenants. Somehow in here, he meets the Chilean ambassador to Germany, who I read didn't know exactly what the deal was with Schaefer in terms of child molestation and sort of uh, tells him very excitedly about how there's a lot of land in Chile totally ready to homestead. Uh, I think right now we should get into a little background on Chile and Chile's yeah. relationship to nazism because chile uh much like a sort of select few other south american countries and then eventually basically every south american country definitely had like a pretty robust relationship uh to nazism and and really in general to germany i mean one of the big things that that i've i've run into a lot when when reading about germany even before this is that a lot of sort of the upper classes there and certainly a lot of their military men were trained by prussian army instructors who went there sort of, uh, I can't remember which war it was after, I think after the Franco-Prussian War, they split Germany and, uh, and, and went to, to Chile and taught at military academies, they taught at high schools, and from that, we actually have Nazi parties emerging pretty early on in the 20th century, explicitly called yeah. the Nazis, N-A-C-I-S. Yes. I don't, I'm sure you can correct my pronunciation, but...
3: <laughs> well, that was correct. Uh <laughs> There's, there's a, an interesting, just sort of quirk of history in this that um, during the, the huge waves of migration from Europe to the United States in uh, the 19th century that were caused by things like the 1848 revolutions and the, the massive uh, agricultural famine that preceded that, uh, we had all these national immigration quotas. And so uh, lots and lots of people got turned away from attempting to immigrate into the United States a number of South American countries and particularly Argentina and Chile had very open uh, immigration policies because they had enormous amounts of kind of unworked, but usable land Yep. and were interested in bringing in as many immigrants as they could. So um, you'll find, for example, there are tons of people from Argentina who consider themselves Italian, uh, who have Italian names, who speak Italian. And, Partly because of that, uh, there was a base of support for both fascism and Nazism in um, South America and in the Southern Cone, Argentina and Chile in particular, because there were so many uh, Europeans there already when those movements started in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, and in Argentina in particular, of course, you had the, the rise of Juan Perón. Yeah. And, his, and I mean, he was sort of, I think Perón is is a very interesting precursor to Trump in a lot of ways, Mm. and he he sort of didn't exactly have a political philosophy. Yeah, a lot of Uh, people call
0: him a fascist, but I I think that's untrue, and like certainly a lot of sort of the left-wing Peronists uh, would would also disagree with that as well. Yeah, yeah. Peronism is like almost its That is like its own thing.
3: Yeah, you, I don't think you can pin down you know, Peronismo enough just to call it fascist, but yeah. he definitely right. did like the Nazis. Oh, uh, yeah. oh yeah. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely was willing to harbor ex-Nazis and to you know, bring them in during the war on visits mm-hmm. of state right. you know, while, while the United States were at war with them. So um, Latin America and particularly the Southern Cone are kind of ready-made for uh, Nazis and fascists wanting to escape Central Europe.
0: Yeah, and, and, and with Chile in particular, um, they actually, the Nazis there in 1938 tried to do a coup and, and, yeah. and take over the country. This was, I have read about a lot of coups in my life, and usually one of the things you want to do when you do a coup is you got to take over the radio station, you got to take over, obviously, where the politicians are, and you probably got to figure out something about the barracks in the capital. What yeah. these guys do is they take over the Social Security building and then immediately I'll get shot.
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> we're yeah. Going to cut
3: it by one point one percent. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: like, I'm not sure. Maybe they were appealing to the older people there. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I don't
2: know.
0: There was a guy I wrote a lot of notes about and who I've known about for a while, but got much more deeply interested in while researching this episode. Named Miguel Serrano. This is. I, I, don't, I haven't really figured out a way to work it in, so I don't think we will. We'll probably do another episode involving this guy. But just real quick of, about Serrano, and he's a good, I, don't, I couldn't say he's emblematic of Chilean Nazism because he certainly has many different characteristics than a lot of those guys. Um, but he was a Chilean guy raised by Prussian teachers. Uh, after I'm not going to get into his, his, his beginnings, but during World War II, he is a Nazi in Chile. He is not a member of the German Nazi Party. He's a member of a local Nazi party. Starts talking to a guy at the Italian embassy and an SS member attached to the German embassy who turn him on to the occult aspects of fascist ideology. He starts mixing it with esotericism, Nazism, with esotericism, Gnosticism, Hinduism, and Kundalini Yoga. Uh, He he eventually joins a strange sort of order, order. uh, who swore allegiance to, I quote, a mysterious Brahmanical elite supposedly based in the, in the Himalayas who were essentially perfect Aryans. And he had this crazy view that, well, actually, I actually wouldn't even want to call that crazy. He had this view that Hitler was the uh, was the god Wotan and he was here because of uh, you know, Kali Yuga and he was like part of a perfect divine being. uh you might think that this would get him laughed out of, you know, whatever beer hall there was in Chile. Huh. It no. did not. Uh, he and his friends, of which at this point there were a lot, would, they would sit down and sort of cross their legs, and this is during World War II, commune with Hitler on the astral plane, because that SS man at the embassy had told them that, yes, the war is fought in the air, on the earth, and in the water but it's also fought in the astral plane. This is a member of the SS who was selected to go to Chile. told him that, uh, after world war II, this guy goes to all these different spots. All he, by the way, does not believe that Hitler died. His master had told him that he had a vision of Hitler after his death and that he was in the hollow earth, which also of course could be the bunker, which he blew his brains out in. Perhaps. Yeah. Nah, he definitely killed himself there. Uh, Anyways, this guy eventually becomes sort of a leading – well, I don't know leading, but a big Jungian, friends with Hermann Hess, uh, and eventually uh, the, the Chilean diplomat to uh, – excuse me, ambassador to Yugoslavia in Austria, which is insane in the 70s. Uh, anyways, he split, uh, he split after Andy came to power, but that is, uh, that is like a guy who came from the milieu of the country, which we are talking about, right? This is yeah, a country incredibly friendly to these ideas.
3: It's, it's worth mentioning that there, there have been various strains of, not even Nazism per se, but what you might call esoteric Hitlerism yes. in, in Latin America ever since World War II. And um, one of my favorite writers, uh, Roberto Bolaño, mm-hmm. uh, is Chilean. And if you ever want to sort of see a fictional account of his stuff, he wrote uh, an amazing book called uh, Nazi Literature in the Americas. Uh, Which is, it's a fake dictionary of fictional uh, North and South American Nazi and fascist novelists and poets and polemicists and all kinds of other shit. And he he lands at least once on, like, every bizarre strain of kind of post-World War II, like, esoteric fascism or mystical Hitlerism or whatever else, you know, managed to survive in these odd little pockets particularly in South and Central America.
0: In India as well.
3: Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. one
0: of the big strains came from there, from a German, but, but, but in India. I don't know what it is, but when for some reason when you mix Nazism with yoga, you get some, like, that is like one of those dialectical processes that like you can't predict. It's like the, the philosopher's stone or whatever. It turns it into something completely insane. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so Schaefer gets to uh, Schaefer gets to Chile and he buys a big ass fucking ranch south of Santiago. Uh, excuse me, south of Santiago that was called El Lavadero and he starts a nonprofit. That is the thing that you need to keep in mind during all of this is that during the entire time this is running until like the mid-90s. In fact, I actually until the mid-90s is what I assume, but it literally could still be a non-profit today. And so it's-
3: I, yeah. I just looked this up. No shit. It's a tourist resort. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. know.
0: Yeah, via Bavaria. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Yeah. I've yeah, seen yeah. some very weird YouTube videos of travel bloggers going there. <laughs>
3: uh,
0: anyways, this thing is 4,000 acres. Fucking huge. Eventually becomes 37,000 acres. And it's surrounded on one side by really tall mountains, which is good if you want to have a compound. Mountains are good. And on the other side by a very vast river. Also very good, and he starts something called the society. Uh, all right, I'm gonna to to say this, and then you're gonna to have to correct me. Sociedad okay. Benefactora y Educational Dignidad.
3: This is Sociedad Benefactora y Educacional Dignidad. Okay, well I can never beautiful. <laughs> Gracias.
0: Anyways, he gets around 300 settlers uh, to come over the next three years. So this is from 61 to 63. Uh, And and he he really gets them to come by having his guys back in Germany tell them that a Soviet attack is coming. A Soviet attack is coming. And I think people living now, including myself, don't really grasp how paranoid people were back then about how the threat of nuclear war and the threat of a Soviet invasion. And he really played on those fears.
3: Yeah, I mean, nuclear war itself is so surreal that especially if you're living in a world where that has only fairly recently become a reality at all. Yeah, It's like, if someone tells you there's going to be a nuclear explosion that takes out the entirety of Central Europe, your reaction, I think, would kind of be like, why not? Like, this this shouldn't be possible anyway. How the fuck do I know that's not going to happen?
1: I don't think that people our age actually understand, I mean, even in America, how omnipresent the threat of, like, nuclear holocaust was. And like, oh, yeah. like, I mean, I talked to, I talked to my mom about that all the time. Her growing, she grew up, um, you know, she's a military brat. And for some of that time was down in Florida during the Cuban missile crisis. And like, you know, they just were like, I mean, every day you day you've got drills for in case of nuclear bomb, everyone get under their desk, which, okay, pause Damn. on that for a second. <laughs> but also it's like, you know, I mean, everyone thought up until the fall of the Soviet Union that, you know, an atom bomb could be dropped at any given moment. And I don't think that people, you know, our age, like, appreciate that kind of existential pressure that filled and was so easily manipulated, not just in America, but abroad.
0: I Uh, would argue, though, that the COVID stuff gives us not a taste of that necessarily, but it's a similar flavor, right? Like this sort of omnipresent a uh, sense of dread that we have, and that we can do basically nothing about, or climate change. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah climate change I, I was going to say climate change because to me it's the COVID stuff. Yeah.
1: Climate is an interesting comparison, I think.
3: I think the COVID is almost like the inverse because in the case of the nuclear bomb, it's not happening anywhere, but could happen at any time. Mm. Whereas in the case of COVID, it's happening everywhere, but everyone to go on living sort of has to believe that's not going to happen to me you know. Right, the, yeah, the, right, right. The, it's like
1: an inverted, the, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of, you know, yin and yang, as long as we're talking about young yins and esotericism and shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about what was going on in this colony. So you've got this psycho preacher from Germany. He's got about 300 followers uh, out on this farm that he's building. And, uh, and things get pretty weird pretty quickly. Um, They start. First of all, they start adopting Chilean children. Which, by the way, again, my third bit of advice here: if your boy is like, "Hey, I started a farm in a remote part of Chile and I'm adopting children," um, again, don't hang out with him anymore. Stop doing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Not
3: not only not only adopting children, but um, using uh, his hospital to adopt children.
0: Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about what they had there quick. They had a factory, which, by the way, it turned out later they were making arms and chemical weapons in.
3: Yeah, yes. Uh,
0: They had a hospital, which it was sort of famous for. They had a restaurant, literally a rest stop, like side of the highway restaurant you could go to. Uh, They had, of course, a ton of different, like, you know, uh, grain milling, et cetera, like a big working farm. And the thing is about the farm is that you had to work about 16 hours a day for no pay, which doesn't seem great. Uh, And also, Schaefer would molest your child. That's the other thing here, is that basically every boy who was at Colonia Dignidad during this period, and in fact, during the entirety of its existence, was molested by Schaefer.
3: Yeah, and he was notably very, very against uh, his his adult subjects having children. Yeah. Uh, Which, I mean, I'm sure had something to do with his bizarre religious beliefs, but I wonder to what degree it may also have had to do with their their protectiveness about mm-hmm. children if they had had them.
1: Yeah, I wonder my my thing is that I think I was reading something like only 30 kids were born through this mm-hmm. entire yeah. like entire yeah. era that the colony was active and they were all basically sequestered away from the mothers in the in the in the hospital at the colony which was actually quite large and and um, by all accounts, I'm actually like a very good hospital, which is kind of a strange little thing yeah. but um, but that my sense or you know, my uh, let's say feminine instinct is that he understood that if the women were were burying children, that they would uh, probably you know, women will do anything to protect their kids <laughs> and 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 he would not have been able to continue you know, what was an essential part of his operation. But, you know, the kind of twist to that, which is interesting, is always like, okay, so he didn't actually see this as a kind of religious experiment that was going to continue past his death because, like, they weren't actually, like, uh, reproducing members of the colony.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that brings up the the fact that, as as we just mentioned, that this, this large and well-supplied hospital, he would invite um, Chilean families from the poor countryside to bring their children there and then abduct the boys to molest them. And that he also, uh, he also adopted boys from orphanages in Germany to molest them. And the very existence of the hospital calls up the, uh, weird excellence of their resources, Right? how they had all this shit and where it came from.
0: Well, one thing is that, that I found reported a couple of places, including, I think in LaVenda's book, uh, uh, is that they had excellent plastic surgeons. And that, combined with the fact that this was a meeting point for many of the people who had escaped Nazi Germany during the rat lines, really makes you think about a couple of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: This was, Um, when I was was talking about interface points earlier, between those, you know, between all these shadow state entities, this is exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely.
3: The kind of place where they meet and, and trade.
0: So... He continues basically unmolested uh, up until the 1970s um, when it appears that Allende is going to be elected president. And during that time, he comes into contact with a group named Patria, Patria y Libertad, uh, who have as a member one Michael Townley. And by the way, this is before Pinochet, Well, uh, excuse me, before Allende gets elected, before Pinochet takes over for him. Uh, Patria y Libertad uh, start, start basically rustling up trouble, knowing that Allende is going to be elected. Once he is elected, they start really going crazy. I mean, there's assassinations, there's kidnappings, there's bombings, and uh, they are joined by the son of a Ford Motors, I believe, executive, who we talked about, I think, on our, a little bit on our, our podcast with Steven Snyder. Uh, yeah, a. you a. mentioned Cruz, him. Uh, named Michael Townley. And yes, Michael,
3: uh, yeah, not the, Townley. <laughs> Please, the, go um, talk about him. Yeah, the, in retrospect, you know, now that we know that Pinochet was, was going to follow, Patria y Libertad, they're, they're, they're kind of like the, like the stormtroopers, you know, in advance of Pinochet. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kind of prepare the way for him. And this guy, Michael Townley, shows up, and um, he's got all kinds of conflicting things going on. Uh, in addition to having been the son of a, a uh, motor company executive in Chile, Uh, He is working for the CIA, but he is also deeply tied to uh, a group that we are going to have to talk about in some horrible terms called the DINA, Mm. Um, the uh, Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional, uh, which under Pinochet, uh, it it means basically the National Intelligence Directorate. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of a combination of a foreign intelligence service like the CIA and like Gestapo. Yes. Yes. He works for them and for the CIA at the same time, and he is a very frequent guest at Colonia Dignidad, where he is involved in all sorts of uh, evil projects, including the assassination uh, of a number of important figures from the Allende regime. He first uh, tries to assassinate a guy named Carlos Prats, who was a um, a general. He was the head of Chilean uh, armed forces, under Allende, who then he serves as defense minister and interior minister and had had a number of other jobs as well. Uh, He fucked up, actually. He didn't kill Carlos Prats, but the Dina did kill uh, Prats uh, when he was in exile in Argentina in 74. And um, I guess, uh, do you want to talk about Orlando Letelier? And in, in this connection.
0: Uh, we, I think we talked about it in the Snyder episode, but but uh, was a official in Allende's government that uh, had to flee, obviously, after uh, after Pinochet took power. I believe he was actually arrested and kind of like beaten around, put on a prison ship. And yeah. then he was allowed to go to America. What, what, what the think tank that he worked for is still around, but I can't remember its name. It, but it had national yeah. well, and I'm sure policy in the title of it. <laughs>
3: What's remarkable about Letelier was not just that he was killed in the United States by Agents of Dina, that he was fucking blown up in Dupont circle yeah. in D.C., but that um, when we talk about uh, Pinochet's Chile, this is something that really, really was born home for me, you know, doing research for this episode. There were, of course, all kinds of countries in Central and South America with CIA-backed, tyrannical, authoritarian regimes, but Chile... Uh, really, really became, as you put it, the proving ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than any other place, this is where they tried out every experiment, everything, everything. they were interested everything. in. Yes. And one of those major experiments was uh, a group of people called the Chicago Boys. Sure. Yeah.
1: Everyone knows I'm a big, big fan of these Chicago Boys. <laughs> I, I, I,
3: I can't believe Liz, Al
0: Capone was at Colonia Dignidad. No.
3: I can't believe the band Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I figured Liz would know about this. Uh, the well, Liz, you want to explain the Chicago Boys?
1: The Chicago Boys are. I mean, that's it's sort of a. Um, you know, catch all term for a group of uh, Chicago school economists who were basically, um, you know, when you talk about, when, pe- you know, everyone throws around the term neoliberalism, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't need to get into my feelings about that. But when we, there are actually specific, um, and, and it sounds crazy, but regional strains of neoliberal economic theory. And you have, the kind of um, order liberals in Germany, you have the Austrians and the two schools in America, one being in Chicago and one being at uh, George Mason University, excuse me. And, um, you know, so the Chicago boys were sort of deputized uh, to basically try out, you know, we say proving ground, but Chile became basically an experiment in total neoliberal economic uh, revolution, I mean, I would call it, where yeah. it was, you know, we, we've talked in the past about uh, shock therapy in Russia, which is sort of a like kind of like second coming of what they had tried out in South America in terms of how quickly you can introduce um, like devastating market economy into a country. And that's what Chicago was bringing into uh, Chile and they and doing it, you know, at the behest of you know, obviously the American government, but also business and, and corporate interests.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it, w- it was really like if they let Milton Friedman just run a country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or, and, for, absolutely. Or, yeah bring in Hayek and let him go wild.
3: Yeah. And um, <laughs> this is kind of incidental, but uh, one of my favorite facts about them is that when they predictably destroyed the economy of Chile, uh, someone asked Milton Friedman, like, hey, they, they did everything you said and it's a fucking mess. And Friedman said, Yeah, it wasn't free market enough. Oh,
2: classic. they didn't,
3: well, <laughs> they didn't go the, far enough. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole yeah. thing.
1: That's the whole thing. It's actually, you know, and that's when, I mean, you know, if we let me, I'll just say this for a second. That's when, you know, law becomes quite important for uh, neoliberal revolutionaries or counter revolutionaries, however you want to call them, situate them, in that the law then becomes the essential tool for perfecting. Uh, you know the equilibrium of the markets that without restructuring the law, and I'm going to call back and say this is again why I maintain that you know Elizabeth Warren is a neoliberal through and through, but through using the law as a tool to restructure the entire nation around the market, um, this becomes the like required development in uh, neoliberal governance through the 20th century.
3: Yeah, and and I mentioned this. Because part of what's remarkable about the assassination of Orlando Letelier is that he was an economist yes. on top of on top of his government post, and part of what he was doing in D.C. was trying to demonstrate to the world uh, free market economics and austerity are not going to fix anything for anyone. They're they're just going to destroy my country if you let these people get away with this, and uh, trying to you know move. Not just Chile, but sort of um, economics for, you know, impoverished, disadvantaged nations in general toward more of a kind of like New Deal, Keynesian mm-hmm. sort of economics. And um, part of the reason they blew his ass up was that. Right. was not just that he was opposing their particular regime, but that he was saying, no, there, there's a way for the third world to get out of poverty, you know, and no one wanted him telling that.
1: Yeah. yeah, and um, you know it's it's not a coincidence that you know another part, another massive part of this of the neoliberal revolution, and it was dictated again by, we'll say the vanguards at George, George Mason University, which was education reform in order to stifle and eliminate. <laughs> Like heterodox economic views that could be yeah. then disseminated through the world. I mean, particularly in economics and political science, the entire scientific turn in the in the um, academies, the sort of social sciences away from anything um, more holistic and towards a kind of straight science, mathematics was, you know, in due part for stifling all this kind of dissident activity against what this project was trying to do. Right. I mean, these are all, you know, we talk about lattice, like this is all part of it.
3: The way we're talking about history earlier, um, you know, the way they teach it to us as these monads, that something like, you know, the assassination of a Chilean diplomat may seem kind of like recondite to most people. Like, why do I care about that? But then you look at that and put it in the context of say Greece in 2008 Or us in well, two thousand eight. So wait wait,
0: let me let me let me say this about Greece too. We were talking about earlier about so find us funneling that gold. Yeah. That gold out of Germany. Well, when the Nazis took over Greece during World War II, the first thing that they did, or one of the first things that they did, was they had their puppet government or the puppet government they installed in Greece basically send them drain the treasuries, send it all to Germany. Yeah. Basically war loot, but, but legal. Right. Because, well, I mean, you know, what is what is the law? But it was officially sanctioned or whatever. Yeah. Um, That money, of course, was never returned. Right. Right. And so so during during Greece's economic crisis, uh, they they, the Greek government tried to uh, tried to get some of that money back. They're like, well, you you never paid us war reparations. Right. Like you are one of the reasons that our, our country is is impoverished. And we'd like that money back. And, of course, the, the Christian Democratic government uh, of Germany said no.
3: Yeah, you'd, you'd like to see Angela Merkel's face when someone says, hey, can we have the Nazi gold back? Yes. <laughs> the, the thing that's underwriting you your it? economy here. Incredible.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. I, I will say, too, like the thing that connects this also to Colonial Dignity Net, another thing there is that is that from reports uh, – Basically, like the, like the front rooms at Colonia Dignidad, the, the rooms that they showed to reporters—well, uh, actually, not to reporters. They didn't let reporters there until the 80s. But the, the rooms that guests saw actually had, uh, had pictures of—, of um, the leaders from the Bavarian Christian Democratic Party, uh, like the Bavarian <laughs> local or whatever, uh, I think it's actually like somewhat a semi-autonomous. From well, not semi-autonomous, but like politics work differently in Bavaria than the rest of Germany, as far as I know. Um, and and they had pictures of their of their presidents there. So before we get too ahead of ourselves, like, I, I think we should go back to what Michael said about how how there's these these nexus points, because I want to list just a few of the people who came by Colonia Dignidad in the 60s and then later the 70s. I mean, we have we have like we mentioned, Michael Townley, we have Pinochet himself, who came a year after he entered power. Uh, we have Gerhard Mertens, who was a member of Scorzani's. Uh, unit during World War II who actually participated in the raid on Gran Sasso, which rescued Mussolini uh, and then later became one of the most notorious arms traffickers in the world who not only worked directly for the army of the United States and the CIA but, uh, and by the way, this is an SS man, an unrepentant SS man, it wouldn't matter if he was repentant, he was in the fucking SS Uh, who, who would come and every time he stayed at Chile he would go up to Colonia, dig the dead and they yeah, I mean, it's, it's all of these things are connected. I mean, Michael Townley met Pinochet in the company of Stefano Della Chai, like you mentioned earlier, at fucking and brought Prince Valerio Borghese, who, like you talked about, the fascism in fucking Italy, who yep. had tried to actually, he was the fucking like. I mean, I mean, the black prince, they called him. He was, during World War II, the head of Italy's frogmen, the, uh, basically the, and I, you know how much we hate these in this podcast, the Navy Seals of fascism. <laughs> well, the first fascist Navy Seals, unlike the, the yeah. deep, just like the new ones. I was going uh, like, to say
3: the explicitly fascist Navy
0: Seals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And they all met up at fucking Franco's funeral. And so like yep. we have this giant nexus of people surrounding this. Oh, yeah, and, it's and,
1: funny because it's like at some point it starts to feel almost Lynchian, where it's like these these like locations of different Black Lodges throughout the world.
3: Do you I was know? just gonna say it literally it is the Black Lodge. Yeah, among the uh, the other, I keep thinking of Norm Macdonald going, "All the stars are here." <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> what I'm thinking of, Joseph Minglea, exactly
0: there. the Angel of Death himself, Joseph Minglea. And, and the other thing, too, about Mangala, too, is that there is a town in Brazil, which
2: yep. been, this has
0: been disputed. But, I mean, this is not disputed. This town has a 10% twinning population. That means that 10% of the, of the births there are births of twins. Uh, for, for comparison, in the surrounding areas, in fact, the surrounding neighborhoods, the twinning population is 1.8%. And uh, that is one of the places Joseph Mengele was allegedly called home after World War II. Of course, yeah. famous for his experiments on twins in, in, in the camps. Yeah,
3: his fascination with them in general. And I believe, didn't didn't go to uh, Colonia Dignidad at one point or another?
0: I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it, I would be surprised if he hadn't. I mean, this, the, the way Colonia Dignidad worked is that if you were a Nazi and you were visiting um, Chile you would go there and stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, there, yeah, there was, I without a doubt. I read a CIA cable earlier about, uh, it was actually in the, from the 80s when they were looking for for um, for Mengele, even though he'd been dead for about four years. I'm sure whoever wrote this report just wasn't clued in on the fact that the CIA definitely knew that. But this is about Miguel Serrano. This is a CIA cable. Serrano was in contact with Von Sanger, who was, uh, I looked him up earlier, hard to find information of him on him, but was a part of Vlasov's, volunteer army, sort of the turncoat Russians that the Germans yeah, did their yeah. own pet Russian army who never actually were able to fight. I believe they had basically like one small battle and then all surrendered. Uh according to, to uh further confidential information, Serrano was in contact with von Sanger uh in connection with the purchase of a real estate in Chile which was meant to be a rest home for right extremists. Uh, It later goes on to say uh, about Colonia Dignidad, how they all visit there and hang out there, so, yeah.
3: And I know some members of uh, the thing we alluded to before, Le Cercle, which is basically not a group in itself so much as kind of a combination, a meta group of a bunch of other groups, of various European reactionary Catholic organizations. Somebody once said, it's the Catholic version of the Bilderberg group, (laughs) which seems about right, and um, there was a guy... um, We mentioned Agente Press before, and Agente Press was this bizarre setup uh, that posed as a press organization like the AP or Reuters, that kind of thing, but was actually essentially a fascist mercenary army. Yes. And the guy who ran it, um, no one knows what his real name was, but he was known variously as uh, Yves Gailloux and Yves Guerin Serac. Uh, and I've heard him called Gayou more frequently. I'm pretty sure Yves Gayou was at Colonia Dignidad as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I think the thing is about Dignidad and that, you know, it's so important that, you know, at this moment as we're kind of moving through this history is that it is this nexus point. And then um, as you were kind of saying earlier about this sort of like detachment, you know, how these, these uh, organizations or organs institutions detach from their like original purpose. Uh, That also happens with Dignidad and it becomes an Mm -hmm. essential, essential institution um, in not just the, you know, um, the, the coup against Allende, but also in the complete, like the legitimation and uh, continued, like, rule, dictatorship, uh, Pinochet. And it becomes, like, a, a kind of essential, um, you know, it basically a, a death and torture camp for Pinochet and any kind of Chilean dissidents.
3: Yes, and, and a key point in the expansion of particular Latin American dictatorships.
1: Yes. Like,
3: like Pinochet in Chile or Jorge Rafael Videla in, in Argentina to the continent-wide Operation Condor. Right. This yes. essentially consolidates all of them via the CIA into one body.
1: Yeah. Now- so when we talk about, you know, we're going to have to go into a part two about this because we're already running long. So this is probably a good, um, a good stopping point just to say that like, we're sort of detailing, you know, I know this has been kind of a wide ranging conversation and it, and it touches all these different kind of crazy histories, but you know, that, it's 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 such an insane case because you've got this you know the dispersion of the nazis in post uh, you know post war into south america you know this this sort of colony this bizarro um you know fucking molestation farm for this one nazi freak becomes an essential nexus point for what will reshape the entire uh you know South American continent over the over the 20th century, or the rest of the 20th century. And and what I guess what we're trying to suggest, as to bring it back to what we talked about to start the episode, is that this is not a coincidence, that there is a thorough line from these developments of post-war and what happens with the Nazis and how they get re-assimilated into the fabric of global governance. And what we witness through, you know, with American and global corporate involvement, of course, in the overthrow of, you know, social democratic in the case of Allende, um, you know, uh, governments for for um, proving ground purposes of neoliberal revolutionaries and counter revolutionaries.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This this is all... Uh, tactically designed to enable both the you know first world takeover of the third world. Basically, what I would call the third world war. Yes. I think the third world yeah, war has already happened. Yeah that, yeah. that was it. And uh, also to uh, enable the violent turn away from any kind of socialism or even mild social democracy. Yeah. And toward what we would call the you know, liberalism.
0: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is literally my favorite subject to talk a bit about.
1: <laughs> I know. I can't wait to do part two. I'm already like, fuck, we have so much to get into.
0: Yes. So the thing is about part two is if you thought this first part was weird and dark and fucked up, everything gets ten times worse. And we get, see, we get to see we get to
1: see an appearance from friend of the pod uh, Kissinger. Henry Kissinger is going to show. Oh yeah. Up. yeah. Kissinger
0: has actually been involved in like several events that I've named so far. But I know, gets, I know, but he gets, he gets, he gets like, real he gets, gets real answer. closely involved in this. Yeah,
1: he gets in real deep.
3: Before we finally go, you want to hear my Kissinger? Yes. Yeah. I think we inherited the tragedy <laughs> and I. And I think we extricated ourselves with honor from this tragedy.
1: <laughs> How is that man still alive?
3: Uh, he can't die. This will yeah. do it. This will do it. He's physically incapable of dying. <laughs> this will do it. I've
0: been battling Miguel Serrano on the astral plane and Kissinger <laughs> on the, uh, <laughs> the Corporeal realm.
3: You, you know that Greek myth where the Cumean Sybil wishes for eternal life, but she forgets, she forgets to wish for eternal youth, so she just like rots and decomposes but she's still alive it looks like Kissinger is doing that like he's, he's actually been dead for like 25 years
0: wait I actually <laughs> have a theory on that that we gotta get all right. remind me of that when we start part 2 because I, <laughs> okay. have, I have something on that we can Hell connect yeah. that that is, that is perhaps a Rathenau-esque <laughs> okay, uh, okay. alright Michael get the fuck out of here let's talk uh, <laughs> let's talk soon I really would love to do part 2 of this as soon as possible Uh, Yeah, thank you guys. Probably be like a week or
3: something. Yeah, whenever, whenever you're ready. Thank you guys so much. This was a lot of fun.
0: It was so much fun. Thank you.
3: Absolutely.
1: I feel bad that we had to kind of like cut that short, but man, we're already at like an hour 30 or whatever. Yeah, that's okay. I want
0: to do two parts anyways. I should have thought- Oh, I was going with the outro. Uh, Yeah. Oh, shit. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's just keep going, baby. I thought we were just talking. Um, I didn't know was I was being do recorded. I do like just
1: talking to you. By the way, by the did way, you know California this conversation is, is being recorded for I was going to say, you know California
0: that? is a two-party recording state, which I know, which I know, because when I try to be a private investigator, turns out that you can't just record people and then sell the footage to their husband or wife or whatever to prove that they're not cheating even though they hadn't hired you and that they just live together and have a happy marriage. Turns out you can't do that and I got a lot of trouble for it. So... You don't want that to happen to you, baby.
1: Oh, God. Well, we're <laughs> recording. We're recording. Okay. Today, I, I, I'm supposed to tell you that. So now you've been notified. So okay. you, can't, you can't say shit, man.
0: I got to notify you of something. What? Oh, I'm not going to know. Because you <laughs> were rude to me. Oh. It's pretty. it's pretty... Here, I'll message it to... I'll message it to... Not to no. you. To him. No. <laughs> this is stupid. Okay. All right. Let's get out of here. My name is Brace.
1: I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky, and we will see you next time. (laughs) Bye-bye.